You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to has anyone seen the bride and groom sorry sorry we're here we were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time no lucky land casino with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry in that case i pronounce you lucky play for free at luckylandslots.com daily bonuses are waiting no purchase necessary void were prohibited by law 18 plus terms and conditions apply see website for details welcome back to part two of you can't say that I'm Tanya Pinkins, and I'm speaking with playwright, television writer, Keith Joseph Atkins. So let's talk about your playwriting. Okay. Um, The plays that I'm, I I mean, I've I've seen probably three or four of your plays, and I almost got to be in one, but, um, you know, Central Park, you've got a play Mm -hmm. about the creation of Central Park. Do you want to tell us about yeah, um, that play, uh, The People Before the Park, um, which is, is um, <laughs> supposed to have a production in the fall. Um, haven't heard from the theater yet, um, but um, it's a play that was inspired by uh, Seneca Village, which was a um, black um, community, um, 19th century black community in the centri- what we now know as Central Park, um, around 81st. 86th Street, sort of Central Park West, going in, going east to maybe what now would be considered Sixth Avenue, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and it was a black community um, that was um, sort of governed by the African Methodist Episcopal Zion Church as well as the African Union Church. Um, and so many of the sort of residents were members of those two churches, right? And then even prior to Seneca Village, which I believe was sort of founded in 1825, I believe, 1825 or 1826, there was another um, community called York Hill, um, which was about like a block or two northeast of where we now, where we, what they consider Seneca Village. It was another community um, there that was um, predominantly African Union, right? And so, and that community was around since the late 1700s. It's because, as far as documentation, and the reason why we know that was because there was a a, a fugitive um, enslaved black man who fled to Canada. And once he got to Canada, like I think in the early 1800s, late 1700s, he wrote that he had um, for a while sort of hid in York Hill, um, which in the, which we now know is the Central Park area. So I just believe that the York, once York Hill was sort of dismantled because the city decided to put the water tower in that area and just sort of disperse those people, they just went a little west and purchased land from some white people who they already knew. So it wasn't like suddenly people came out of nowhere and created Seneca Village. They were already in that area. Mm. Um, and so I was just very, very, like I am always very interested in sort of unpacking and looking at the black experience um, historically and future wise, but 
um, in this case, historically, and how people navigate and sort of like the, um, the audacity of black people, the intelligence, the strategic moves of black people. And so with Seneca Village, you have this community that came together who wanted to stay together to keep themselves sort of isolated from downtown Manhattan, which was basically the Wild West, um, where they would walk the streets downtown Manhattan, five corners, five, excuse me, five points and other places like that and can be murdered in a moment just for being black. So being uptown was safe for them. It was a safe haven. It was swampy. It was wooded for the most part, very, very rocky. Um, wasn't easy to sort of um, till the land there, but at least it was theirs. And they were also property owners, partly because um, in order to vote um, in the city of New York, I mean, in the state of New York, you had to have property. So, mm. so many, and so many um, black people were being impacted by white policy and being powerlessness, powerless in those policies. They decided, like, let's even take a stronger step forward and, you know, make sure we're voting on behalf of ourselves. So we need to own some land. And so many of the owners of the properties in Seneca Village and even, you know, earlier with York Hill, but now just with Seneca Village, were members of the African Methodist Episcopal Zion Church, some of whom didn't even live in Seneca Village. They just owned the property there so they could vote. Mm, gosh, um, that's a piece of history that I did not know. Now, yeah. you brought up two things. It took me on two tangents. I got to hold both of them. Okay. The first one I want to hit is that, um, did you ever see that show, The Nick? I have not seen The Nick yet. No, it's on my list of many. Well, it, it was interesting because one of the things I appreciated about The Nick was it seemed to depict the violence that happened against uh, black Americans in New York um, in a way that I felt was authentic and mm -hmm. was, was showing that this was not okay. Right. And I, I'm going to contest that with, that I watched the first episode of, of uh, the Watchmen. And I felt that that one, when I turned in and I saw that violence, I felt like they were not commenting. They were just showing it as if this was okay. And this was fine. And that was so different than the way, it was framed inside the Nick, even though in both instances, no words were spoken. Right. There was a sense in the Nick that you knew, like, this is not cool. Right. Right. <laughs> um, right. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, you also have a history in um, finding people's African heritage. Yeah, we, uh, yes. Uh, yeah. Afri yes. African heritage. Uh, more, more specifically, they're, Black American and African or and or African American um, ancestry or genealogy. How do you do that? Because I've done ancestry.com. I've done the uh, national, what is it? National Geographic, the human genome project. Okay. Right. And that stuff doesn't seem very accurate at all. It's like sort of isolating you by a community. And, and we know that two Yorubas have more diverse DNA than any two people anywhere on the planet. <laughs> leave right. the continent. So, Tell me more deeply about this tracking people's ancestry. Yeah, I mean, for me, like, I mean, what I do um, is I build, I build family genealogies and family trees. Um, I'm not um, in the business of DNA testing or anything like that, so I can't help anyone find out any specific ethnic group they come from within Africa at all, like any kind of scientific thing. Um, um, but I am, I am able to um, build trees. For, I've had at least 50 clients, 50 black families that I've built trees and built genealogies for over the last decade. 
Um, and, you know, and so for me, you know, um, you know, so the origin story of all that is my grandfather was my maternal grandfather told me his family genealogy when I was a kid. And I had no idea. He kept telling me this person, their, their name and their mother and their father. And I was like the only one of the grandkids who was sort of spouting what he had told me. And I felt a little bit like a nerd. I don't know what, why he had told me whatever. And as an adult, I was like, wow, I want to know more about what he, what he sort of instilled in me. And then I just started doing research. I went to the Mormon genealogical library, discovered they had all this documentation because the Mormons believe, I think the, they want to gather as many ancestors or many people as possible in the hereafter. There's some, there's some kind of religious sort of um, mission around their genealogy. It's not just they're just looking for their family. It's like some kind of heavenly, to be with the heavenly father, the more people you can gather in your, in your family, like the better or something like that. I, I could be um, sort of not languaging that correctly, but I know there is a religious sort of element to their genealogy, but their, their libraries are packed with information. And so I was able to find my grandfather's family as well as my grandmother's family. And because of that, I just expanded all four grandparents. And I found documentations and wedding certificates and, and death certificates and births and you know, migratory information and um, lynching information. It was just packed with information, right? And so I did that for myself and then I started doing it for others. Um, and then I did so many families that I began to have a sense of, if you said a, a last name, I could tell you what part of the country that black family came from. Mm. And, and so sometimes people will tell me stuff about themselves and, they'll, and I'll ask them their last name and they'll tell me some narrative that isn't true. Because I'm like, that's not true because those people only lived on that side of the river, you know? <laughs> so, I've got, so some black people got to be careful when they talk to me about, you know, being part Cherokee and stuff like that. I'm like, oh, okay, well, that you ain't really part Cherokee because those people weren't Cherokee. Um, but, um, but even with the Cherokee part, like what's really fascinating that many black people, most of the clients that I had initially, like maybe the first 15, all wanted me to, to find their Cherokee ancestor, all of them. Mm. And it was all a woman. It was never a man. And she was always, her hair was always so long. She tripped over it. You know, it was the same story. I was like, wow, are you all related to each other? What's going on here? And so, um, but what I did discover was there is some truth in our sort of sort of Native American ancestry because of the Southeast had a sizable population of uh, what they call mixed race Cherokee or mixed race Indians by the mid seven, the mid 1700s or the mid 18th century. And so if you, and so if you had someone like that in your ancestors, say like a fourth grade grandmother, and she ends up having 150 to 200 great grandchildren, and those 250 great grandchildren also have grandchildren, all those people can claim that same ancestor and say, oh yes, I'm part Cherokee. So there is, mm. um, there is some truth to it. You know, it's just, I think people are kind of lost in the narrative at all. Narrative, narrative of it all. But my bigger point is um, I just came, became very, very fascinated in helping black people, black families sort of find out more about their American experience because I think it, it was often sort of, you know, uh, uh, erased and or not considered urgent or important. Um, we were taught things that were not about ourselves or misinformation about ourselves. We were not taught the micro specificity of who we were and our, our grandparents and great grandparents journeys. So I, so for me, it's like really, a, it's a very revolutionary act to find um, and build trees for black families. And that's how many, how many uh, grandchildren did your grandfather have? My grandfather had 11 grandchildren. Why did he tell you? 
I don't know. I don't of course know. you know. Why do you think? Well, I mean, I don't know because, I mean, one thing I was, um, my, when my mother went to work, when my parents went to work, my grandmother, my mother dropped me off of my grandparents um, before before I started school. So I, would, I was dropped off there and I was around them. Um, and then she would pick me up at three o'clock and take me back home. But I spent the day with them. And I think perhaps because I was around them so much and perhaps I, there, I you know, I sort of uh, expressed some eagerness and was a curiosity about many things. Um, my grandfather probably said, well, here's the one that's going to, I'm going to store the history within this kid. Um, yeah. He was midwifing you to be the next griot, right? Uh, yeah. Yeah. No, it's true. It's true. Um, so yeah, so yeah, but I, I'm I'm thankful. He, I'm thankful that he did that, and very grateful um, because I didn't know that as an adult it would turn into such a significant part of my life. Um, mm -hmm. You know, um, and even you know, in a way, inform my interest in the future. You know, in Afrofuturism and sci-fi. You know, sort of understanding the past helps me. Not helps me, but I think it triggers an urgency about rebuilding a future. Mm. Um, and sort of reimagining the future because I saw what the past looked like in both its ugliness and its beauty. And so yeah. like, can I craft something like that for the future? You know? So yeah, it's been, it's been a very significant part of my life and I'm very grateful for it, you know? Mm -hmm. Now you also have a, a show. I mean, I saw a, the first episode of it of a kind of sci-fi horror piece, the abandoned you know, that's my, my favorite world, the sci-fi horror. Yes. So the abandon, is there going to be more of the abandon? And I know you were even having some readings for another sci-fi piece. I wasn't sure if that was uh, an extension of the abandon or what. Right. So yeah, the abandon, um, I created a few years back, um, with the intention of it being a full series, like an, you know, a six episode series, um, like 20 minutes each web series. And, um, you know, got all the funding I could for that first episode. Um, very much inspired by um, The Descent, which was um, a sort of sci-fi horror film um, from back, I think, like 2008, I believe, about a group Is of that the women down in the cave? Yes. Okay. Right, yes. Because <laughs> like, when I saw that, I, was, I didn't even finish it the first time. I was like, look, just these women fighting with each other. That's a horror enough. <laughs> exactly right. It's, so, it's such a smart film because it's like you you place people together who already have tension. You put them in a secluded, isolated environment, which is for them caves underground, and then you sort of introduce like this other other sort of entity that they have to fight, and then then it, that triggers their sort of you know survival instincts. And then therefore that triggers their animosity. You know, so it's a great, great sort of very simple. Um, uh, way of telling story about character in, in sort of mm. in, in close relationships, which is what I wanted to do for um, the abandoned with black men. I wanted black men to go on a hiking trip and find themselves in the middle of something, you know, in, in the case of the abandoned, there was like, you know, a possible alien invasion, um, alien occupation of the world. And they just happen to be camping while it, ha while it happens and it exposes their conflicts and sort of interpersonal sort of demons or whatnot. Um, but yes, yeah, so, the, so the mission of that was to have um, six episodes. Um, and then after the first episode launch, which was very, very successful, like it was just, it just went crazy. I was like, wow, this is like, people really wanted to see like black folk in a sci-fi world. Even though when I initially pitched it to um, an executive, like an industry executive 
from some major company, Tanya, it was interesting. They told me that, um, oh, well, that's very interesting, but they're black people don't watch sci-fi. There's no audience for it. I was like, huh? (laughs) So that made me go out and do it myself. I was like, you know, so I'm going to do it myself. Um, But what happened was, and this happens often, I believe, I learned such a big lesson in this, is that I had several people come to me wanting to support the project um, financially. Um, Mm. And so they dangled money in my face anywhere. It was anywhere from 50,000 to a million dollars. Mm. Thing went in front of me as far as like we can make this happen, right? People were coming from out of Facebook, like Facebook messaging me from Hollywood, you know, all that was going on, and I got so amped. I was like, "Oh my god, this is about to blow up!" Oh my god, you know. And so I re- I wrote all the other episodes, and I was so excited. And then eat, one by one, each one of those sort of um, danglings just sort of went away. Um, you know, money didn't come through. They they were now not interested. They moved on to something else. So now I'm left with nothing. I'm left with a year and a half later, waiting for monies to happen with, you know, the, the urgency behind it was gone. So then I wrote a feature version of it, which I think you may be talking about. Um, okay. Feature film version of The Abandoned. Um, and um, I'm still trying to kind of get that made. It's definitely a sample that's being used often. I have a couple people looking at it now. I have another film, though, that is a horror film um, uh, that another writer, uh, Devin Hawk and I, um, co-created and wrote and we are actually that is going to be produced we're just on the phone with the producers um yesterday about COVID-19 we call it COVID-19 proofing the script um Mm. which what does that mean means basically like looking in scenes and taking out all the crowd scenes um and sort of downsizing characters so that way you have less characters less actors sort of to be responsible for the you know responsible for their health um, mm. and like making sure like, you know, like there's enough outdoor shots and trying to keep anything that's inside a space. Like, can you do it outside the space? You know, things like that. So, um, but yeah, so that, that, that film, um, which is called, um, uh, the Nightman, uh, is, uh, it's coming to uh, production soon. I hope I don't. Awesome. We'll see. Yep. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby. Mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa. Take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. I just made my first uh, feature film in the fall. Oh, nice. Which is a socio-political horror film, and we're in post now, and uh, hopefully it'll find a home because content is king at the moment. They want exactly. It's for people who have things. Somebody was just saying to me yesterday that it's really a good time for people who have things in post-production because 
um, companies are buying. They, they need content. They need content. You know, I think I even heard that their people are going, some of the companies and networks are going back into the vault of things that they said no to. Yeah, I'm sure that's happening. And pulling that back out. Yep. Yeah, I'm sure we're going to see a lot of stuff that got shelved, a lot of pilots that got shelved. We're yeah. going to see a lot of content that got shelved. I'm right. sure there's millions of things because people are consuming content so rapidly during right. this time. And this is going to go on for at least another six months. Yep. Uh, yeah, I agree with you. I agree with you, definitely. You're very, seem like to be a very spiritual person to me. Can you tell me something that seemed like a bad thing at the time, but it set you up for something good later? Hmm. That's, very, that's a very wonderful question. Um, you know, I think, I think about this often. I think about, I'm from Ohio, from Southern Ohio, Cincinnati specifically. Um, and Cincinnati was and still is, for the most part, it's improving, but a very ultra-conservative um, very sort of strongly Christian in on sort of in a right wing kind of way, um, extremely racist, um, which sometimes comes out of the conservatism um, and a very absolute world where things are black and white. Um, and, I, and I grew up in that environment where there was a certain expectation of me because I was just part of the I was just part of the culture of Southern Ohio, right? And my mother was um, a maverick and progressive, and so was my dad, but my dad um, you know, was much more traditional in sort of the way he behaved and sort of like his interests, but he also was a maverick and progressive thinking. And so they both kind of um, showed me that there was a world outside of Cincinnati where I could sort of define myself. I didn't need to sort of rely on the definitions of an absolute world. Mm. And, and I think, you know, because I was navigating sort of gender expectation and, and sort of, you know, uh, racism and all those things in Southern Ohio, um, I began to feel a little suffocated and I felt like I didn't know myself. I felt like I was walking around with definitions that other people had sort of imposed on me and I couldn't find myself. And I think that once I left Ohio, sort of with the kick of my mother, like, get out of here, because if I could, I would get out of here, right? That's what she said to me. Um, and got into the world, I really devoted and decided to commit my life when I was relatively young, like in my early 20s, mid-20s, that my life was going to be dedicated to self-definition. And so mm -hmm. that required a lot of unpacking of other people's expectations, a lot of other people's insecurities and fears and, and all of that. And that, that's a lifetime of work to unpack you know, just not your sort of immediate experience of growing up in a certain place, but even the generational expectation and traumas that, that are imposed upon you as a black person, as an American, as a human. And so I, I think I'm very intentional about always being aware that I, I have the, the license to unpack and find myself. And so I'm ne I've never, like, I feel like, you know, every six months I'm like, oh my God, I feel like a brand new person, you know, because I'm constantly you know, finding myself, you know? Um, and I think maybe that, you know, is translatable. That's, that, that's being translated as a spiritual sort of journey. And I think it is, you know, I feel, um, I feel like I, you know, I'm always in conversation with the universe, with God all the time. Mm. And, and I thank it 
for, mm. you know, showing me that self-definition was going to be my salvation, you know? Mm. Mm. So with your, your, you know, ongoing self-defining becoming, what are you saying yes to and what are you saying no to? And mm. how do you find a way to say no? Yes. Yes, God. Um, <laughs> well, you know what's interesting, Tanya? Like, initially when, um, you know, the stay-at-home order happened and the pandemic sort of really sort of showed its face, right? And everybody was just like, what the, my God, and there was deaths and all that. Like, I really didn't have any, I didn't, I was speechless. I didn't know what to say. And, you know, and I was also in the middle of, like, curating um, some plays for the Apollo Theater and sort of, you know, the New Black Fest was coming up and I had all these very specific things and ideas about what I wanted to do sort of politically and artistically. And then this happened and it just silenced me. And I was like, oh my God, I don't even know what to do. Like, what do you say to this? Like, you know, let me take some time to just be still and just figure out where I am and what is happening to all of us. And out of that came a disinterest in anything that wasn't speaking on the behalf of black well-being, mm. um, not interested. No, no interest for it. I don't want to just have. And then people were inviting me to sort of participate in play readings, virtual play readings. And I was like, well, if the if the play that is happening has something to do with our wellness and what's happening right now in our current situation, cool. But if it's not, I don't want anything to do with it. That's just where I am right now. Mm-hmm. So even I told my managers. It got to the point. I told my managers, hey, I don't want to have any more conversations with producers or any production companies if the content they're interested in has nothing to do, if it has nothing to do with black folks or marginalized experience or the current state of the world. Like, and that's where I am now. I think, um, I think I've always kind of been that way, but I think this, you know, speaking back to what you were saying about what triggered you from one thing to the other, um, this pandemic has definitely triggered a part of me, um, that has always wanted to, to stand strong in a certain sort of um, uh, POV, you know? And now I'm just like, nope, if it ain't got nothing to do with that, I don't want to be, I don't want to have anything to do with it. I'm not interested. Um, and you say that you are busier than you've ever been. Yes. It's crazy. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> so, yeah, that's, that's, that's where I am. That's where I am. And, um, and, uh, and now, you know, even now I, you know, I, I'm, things are coming to me. Like, you know, I think taking this time and just being still, even though it's difficult because, you know, like you said, like the COVID-19 the pandemic thing, this could be going another six months um, and beyond. And so I'm aware of that, but now I feel a little more empowered by, st- by just being still and, and looking at the world and looking a little ahead in the future, which is what I always do. Like I just say, okay, what's going to happen two months right um and so i'm much more i'm much more inspired and focused to create work to participate in conversations about work you know um and be very specific about you know how to curate and engineer things that i think are important to who we are right now um and because you know like you and i were just saying earlier you were more more than i was in the beginning like this has really exposed a lot about this pandemic has really exposed a lot about the vulnerability of the black community in this country and just historically so. Mm. And, 
And so what can we do as thinkers, as artists, as human beings to rectify that vulnerability? And that's not to say that we're not empowered people or extremely intelligent, because that's that's a given, right? That's one of the reasons why they try to keep us vulnerable. Um, But, you know, I think that even more so for me, I want to be much more active and much more deliberate about sort of finding ways to um, minimize the vulnerability, you know? Mm. Um, And that's where I am. I feel like Ava, Lena, Issa are really, uh, you know, making this space and bringing and midwifing other artists through. Do you see that that will continue, you know, post COVID that they will continue to have this, these platforms to keep bringing new voices into the television film world? Yes, I I do believe so. I I, I think, um, I think Ava in particular is interesting because she does seem to be very invested, even though she says she never thought she would sort of be sort of a political filmmaker, but she seems very much invested in those type of stories Mm-hmm. And sort of exposing those truths. Um, and I think for me, she is someone that is a beacon as far as like wanting to continue to tell those kind of urgent stories and being sort of committed to that kind of urgency. Um, I think Lena and Issa are continuing to create opportunities which are which allow for other artists to find their urgency and, and sort of you know be committed to urgency. So all of them are equally sort of important. Uh, for different reasons, you know, um, but I definitely feel like, you know, um, it's undeniable that our story and experiences in this country are, you know, integral to changing this, this, the, you know, the way this country is looked at and how it sort of navigates it. It's, I think it's always been us. Like you said, it's always been us, um, you know, as far as the democracy is concerned, like, and I think, I think that even if even if there is any law or somehow the white institution decides, oh, we want to tell black stories because we understand what's going on too, which that is also going on. And you and I are aware of that, right? Um, mm-hmm. but I think the like you were saying earlier, like the guerrilla sort of um, movement that is necessary right now because we don't know what's going to happen to the smaller sort of institutions and entities. It's very important that we get on the ground and just unapologetically in your face tell good quality stories about who we are, the good, the bad, and the ugly. Um, Cause I think it's, it's just, it's just what we need, you know? Um, and, and, th- and thankfully we have Ava, Issa and Lena and others who are sort of- um, Charles King, Macro, yeah. Right, exactly. Um, but we also can't wait for all that, you know? It has been such a pleasure talking to you. I have one last question for you in our COVID-19 edition. What are you consuming? Uh, movie, book, television, film that is, uh, you know, what do you, what do you, what are you nur- 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 nourishing yourself on right now? Um, <laughs> um, I'm, I'm, I'm consuming um, television. Um, you know, Tell I, us what? Um, let's see. I've watched uh, Little Fires Everywhere, which I thought was really interesting storytelling and an interesting sort of racial gender conversation. Um, I um, I watched uh, the Malcolm X documentary, which broke my heart and blew my mind. Um, uh, What's that on? 
What's that on? That's Netflix. Okay. Mm-hmm. You talking about the? Are you talking about the uh, Miles Davis? Mm-mm, no, Malcolm X. Oh, okay. I don't even know that one. Okay. Yeah, Malcolm X doc. Um, okay. And uh, what else have I? Um, what you reading? You know, I just finished reading um, in Jameson's, you know, sci-fi writer's newest um, novel, um, which is set in New York. Um, What's it called? Uh, the City We Became. Mm-hmm. Um, which is really, really good. Um, very inclusive, like inclusive world. Like everybody's represented. It's it's really kind of wonderful. Um, and uh, yeah, I think I mean that's pretty much it. You know, honestly, like I said, like you know, I, I, there's been a lot of time where I'm just sort of still and just sort of chilling. I'm you know experimenting experimenting with a lot of vegan cuisine, and um, I done mastered a you know oatmeal almond butter cookie (laughs) with no flour, you know, um, really trying to nourish my spirit, you know, my body, keep myself healthy. And, and, uh, you know, so that's always helpful. Well, it was really great getting to talk to you, Keith. Uh, You too. And you sound, you sound like you're just blooming, blooming. I appreciate that. I, I appreciate that. Thank you so much. When we, when I, I'm going to wrap out and we need to stay on the phone for a moment because they have to upload the recording. Okay. Because that's the way Zencaster works. So I'm going to just do a close. Okay. And then we're going to just wait until Alan tells us that we're done. Thank you so much, Keith, for uh, speaking with me t- today. This would be a COVID edition of You Can't Say That. My name is Tanya Pinkins. And uh, come back and listen to more intimate conversations with smart people about the world that we live in. Thanks for listening to You Can't Say That, the show where you can. I'm Tanya Pinkins. This is part of the Broadway Podcast Network, produced by Dory Berenstein and Alan Seals, edited by Derek Gunther, music by Anthony Norman, available wherever you get your podcasts. And visit me on Twitter and Facebook and Instagram and let me know what you'd like to hear me talk about. For more information, visit bpn.fm forward slash YCST. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E.org because only together we rise. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.